Hi. Hi. Good morning, church. It's, it's so good to be with you. Um, when Jesus stepped on the scene in the first century, he came with a message of the inbreaking kingdom of God. And this kingdom brought with it a lot of upside-down values that, that really surprised a lot, if not everybody uh, at the time. And Jesus was the one who perfectly embodied every one of those upside-down but true values. Jesus was both message and messenger. If you're taking notes today, I encourage you to write that down. Jesus was both message and messenger. And then following his death and resurrection, which held their own values connected to the kingdom of God, he commissioned his closest friends and disciples to take the message that Jesus had and to teach it to the whole world. And that by doing so, all of the world would be reconciled back to the creator God himself. And that is what the church has been trying to do for the past two millennia. And that's what's at stake. The reconciliation of all the world. Bringing it back to God. To provide hope to the hopeless. To see the dead come back to life again. Jesus called out to those who desired the things of God. To be so well acquainted with his message. That, he, that they would, as he once did, embody the message. That we would be message and messengers. Last week, Pastor Jason walked us through the, the tumultuous waters of how the message of Jesus interacts with our politics. And I'm so glad it was him and not me. This week we continue in this series by addressing how the embodied message of Jesus interacts with the disembodied world of social media. In order to adequately and biblically speak to this complexly convoluted topic, I think it's best to begin by describing the relationship between pearls and pigs. That makes sense, right? Amen. Come on. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them and open them to Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. If you're here today and you do not have a Bible, you don't own a Bible, we have some as a gift. Over here to my left and in the back as well. Please grab one on your way out today as our gift to you. So, Matthew chapter 7, verse 6 reads as follows. These are the words of Jesus. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn And tear you to pieces. Now, to me, in my reading of this text, it is overwhelmingly clear exactly what Jesus was trying to say about the inherent dangers of social media presence. While also showcasing a powerful metaphor explaining how the love and friendship of the kingdom of God work in the reality of our world. Right? That like just jumps off the page to reading this. No, no. I mean, seeing some yeses, some laughs, some no's. No, right? This is weird. Like, I know this is Jesus, but this is weird. And it's, it is particularly weird to our kind of Western 21st century ears for a lot of reasons. Uh, but I think that this, this saying, this teaching, this story, if you will, has a lot to teach us about how the message of Jesus interacts with our responsibility on our social media presences. And really in the world of technology. Now this saying, this story comes uh, sort of near the end of one of Jesus' most important sermons. Maybe the most important sermons of all of the Gospels recordings. And it's known as the Sermon on the Mount. 
Now, on the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of scholars believe that this, this is a collection of Jesus' most crucial teachings about how to get along inside of the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus broke into the world with the upside-down values of the kingdom of God, and here he is outlining for us how to get along in it, how to live well in it, how to honor God and to, and to love people better inside of the kingdom of God. And here we also read about pearls and pigs. And maybe you're thinking like, man, I just need to read this like in context. So like, let's put, let's put a frame around it. Okay, let's try it. Matthew chapter uh, 7, verse 1. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time you have a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. It's clearer. No. That makes sense. It's still a little weird, right? It kind of it kind of comes out of it seems as if it comes out of nowhere. You know, um, but but again, I, I really believe that this has something for us today. Dallas Willard uh, is a, um, one of my personal heroes in the faith. He was a professor of philosophy for many years, uh, but also kind of a religious and, and theological uh, scholar. And he wrote this concerning these teachings at the end of Jesus' sermon. They are absolutely vital points to the overall teaching and its progression. They illustrate the inner texture of kingdom life with family, friends, co-workers, and next-door neighbors. They illustrate the kingdom attitude toward those closest to us. Without them, the rest of the sermon would never do as a plan for building the house of one's life upon the rock. They're crucial. The teaching here, seriously, about pearls and pigs is crucial to our understanding of how to rightly follow Jesus inside of the kingdom of God, in our real worlds, in your jobs, with your families, at home alone. And what Jesus is particularly talking about here in chapter 7 at the beginning is, is judging others. Now, judging is kind of a convoluted word in English, right? Because we have judges that are appointed and we like them. We want them to enact justice. We want them to bring rightness out of kind of a corrupt and broken world. And so we want them in their place. And yet we also have the connotation around the word judgment or judgmental, meaning we are taking the place of a judge where it's not our place to do so. And we are hurting people in the process. And so it bounces back and forth between those two meanings. And really, I think a better word to encapsulate what Jesus is trying to do here is talk a little bit about condemnation. And in our world, the word to condemn literally means to throw down. It means to, 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 to throw out or to throw into the garbage, if you will. And that's really what Jesus is talking about here in judging others. He's talking about treating other people poorly and not allowing the love of God to be the guiding principle in your life as a follower of Jesus inside of God's kingdom. So like I said, even in its context, it feels a little weird. But what I think Jesus is doing here is I think he's trying to tell us a story to emphasize a crucial point about how the love of God is supposed to be the guiding principle in our life in the kingdom of God. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Let's pause for a moment 
and talk a little bit about technology. Talk about technology and social media and how those two things are really helping to shape our understanding of friendship, accountability, and even ourselves, our own self-perceptions. So it should come as no surprise to you that we live in a culture that is driven by technology. I am preaching from a computer right now. Everything we do from, from our effectiveness in our jobs to like personal enjoyment, playing angry birds centers around entertainment. And not only that, but also how we connect with one another. There, there was a study done by a woman by the name of Mary Meeker. She was a venture capitalist and former wall street securities analyst. And she did this nationwide kind of poll uh, a few years ago that found that most of us touch our phone 150 times a day. And upload 1.8 billion pictures to Facebook a year. Now, there's this, there's this app um, you can get on the App Store called Moment. Um, and it, what it does is it tracks every time you open your phone. And then it tracks like what apps you use inside of your phone. And I did an experiment at the beginning of last week. I'm like, I'm going to download this app. And then I'm going to like track what I do, like how much I use my phone. And, uh, and I was like, and honestly, I did it because I was going to brag a little bit here because I don't like, I, my wife does all of my technology stuff for me. Like I'm not hugely into it. You know, I'm thinking like, I'm going to be like, I'm going to look so good. Like I've got this under control and my daily average was about four hours a day using my phone, four to five hours a day. And so I was like, wow, okay, that seems bad. Like, am I addicted to my phone? And so I, so, I, so I looked up the national average because I was a little bit, like, self-conscious at this point. Like, oh, my goodness, who am I, you know? Um, and I felt a little bit better, but also, at the same time, a little bit more discouraged because the national average is somewhere between 5 to 10 hours. Now, you have, you have, to, you have to understand that you use your phone probably more than you think. Uh, I was not the whole time, like, on my phone on Facebook or, like playing angry birds or whatever, you know, I was sending emails, I was making calls, I was sending text messages. I was doing productive things. Like I wasn't just chilling in a dark room with my phone all day. Um, but, it, but even, even like using my phone to play music, right? That, that was, that moment would track that. It would track the activity that I was doing there. And so I'm not making excuses. I'm saying we use our phones a lot. We use technology probably even more than we even think we do. I, I know that I do now. Um, by the way, download moment and try it out for yourself. And I'm just saying it's an eye opening experience. Um, by the way, this is not a paid, uh, thing for moment. I don't know them. That's just anyways. Um, many psychologists and sociologists would, would take this uh, a step further. And what I mean by this is like the ready, uh, ready availability of technology. You know, if you talk to a teenager today, they talk about technology, like a fish talks about water. What I mean by that is like, they assume it's their reality. They don't even know that it never was once. I mean, I remember my first cell phone. It was like a walkie talkie. You guys, it was like this big and like chunky and I couldn't even put it in my phone. I had to put it in my backpack, but even that wasn't that long ago. Technology is becoming the, the assumed reality of our zeitgeist. It, it, it is the thing that drives all other things. And be, because we use it so much, we begin to forget that it's real, that it's informing our reality. 
And so psychologists and sociologists are taking this a step further and saying that it is changing not only how we do stuff, but what they call our social culture. And what I mean by that is that the way you and I share ourselves in relationships with other people is being primarily driven by technological connection. To explain that a little bit further, when, when you feel the need to hear what's going on in someone's life or, or, or see how people are doing, to, to get caught up in, in what their life looks like, primarily for most people, their first trip is to Facebook. Or if they're wanting to go and understand what's going on in the world, maybe their first trip is to Twitter. Or if they want to um, see kind of like what people are seeing, they went on vacation, maybe their first trip is to Instagram rather than actually calling that person. And in some contexts, like that feels weird now, like to know that they went on a vacation, but they didn't actually tell you about it, but you know, because you saw it on Facebook. There has been a serious uptick in sociological exploration of this phenomenon since the early 1990s. For instance, the Gallup group, which is one of the premier uh, polling groups in the United States, presented a poll in 2001 to gauge how many really good friends the average American had. Okay, so in 2001, the average American reported having 10 really good friends, which like as an introvert, I'm like, wow, that's kind of a lot. Like I'm sort of overwhelmed by that number. Um, But that's what it was. In 2001, the average American had 10 really good friends. And then Gallup did the exact same poll, interviewing the exact same number of people with the exact same kind of questions in 2014. In 2014, the average American reported having two really good friends. Now, before we go any further with this, to be fair, the qualifications of how someone recognizes a really good friend are at best vague. However... These findings still hold some significant weight because they suggest that we are beginning to fundamentally redefine what friendship looks like. And many sociologists believe that our use of technology is the driving force behind that, and I would tend to agree with them. Shelley Turkle uh, is one of the leading sociological voices on this topic. Uh, I, I used her as a reference in a sermon a while ago, in her book, Alone Together. She did a, a recent TED Talk on that. Uh, in that TED Talk, she said this, We expect more from technology and less from each other. And when asked why, she says, Technology appeals to us where we are most vulnerable. She goes on from here to connect that the inherent loneliness that is a part of being human is the reason why and how we are beginning to guide and develop, program, and use our technology. Now, when normal people use the word loneliness, they connect it to things like depression or sadness or it's a, it's a difficult, wrong, bad thing. When sociologists use the word loneliness, what they're referring to is people being okay or content being alone. See, there's a difference there. Loneliness is not, it's not a bad thing in the sociological world. It is, it is a part of being human, to be alone. Now, loneliness now, for us, that act of being alone, has become a problem that needs to be solved, and we are using now technology to fill in the gaps of those alone times. All you have to do is look at a person waiting for their coffee at Starbucks, or waiting in line at the bank, or even at a red light in their car. Which don't do that. If I could just take them out, like, just please. I have a one-year-old daughter, terrified. Just, anyway, that was not in my notes. Um, uh, and so this is what she means by 
technology appealing to us where we are most vulnerable. Yes, being alone is a part of being human, and it's one of those parts that we really just don't like very much. We're not huge fans of being alone or feeling lonely. In her words, Shelley identifies... Uh, I'm sorry, Shelley identifies technology providing us with what she calls three gratifying fantasies. And I have them listed on your notes. And they are these. One, that we can put our attention wherever we want it to be, whenever we want. Two, that we will always be heard. There will always be someone to listen to us. We will always have an audience at our fingertips. And three, that we will never have to be alone. Now, at a primal level, I believe uh, that, that God has created us to be fundamentally in relationship. I don't care how introverted you are. You need friends. And I know this because I say that to myself. I need friends. I need friends and people in my life. And now, in the reality of social media, that's made even, I can have hundreds, even thousands of friends. And they're even better than real people. Because I can send one post and touch hundreds, if not thousands of people. I I, I could send one article knowing that at least probably 50 people are going to read it and be influenced by it in some way. I, I can do this to an invisible audience and I can relish in their inaudible cheers. You are guaranteed a watching audience and therefore... You never have to be alone. And that idea of never being alone is central to what is changing and beginning to change our psyches. Being alone now feels like a problem that needs to be solved instead of a reality of being human. And this takes the form of constant connection, which leads to a totally new way of being human. The way that um, Shelley Turkle uh, identifies this as by the saying, I share, therefore I am. I share, therefore I am. Meaning that your perspective, your experience, your opinion becomes meaningless if it is not posted, tweeted, snapped, or shared. A great, perfect example of this is the uh, unicorn frappuccino by Starbucks. Now, I... I, I don't throw it up yet, Mike, but I, I, I used this example last uh, service um, because the reason this is such a great example is because Starbucks, a multi-million dollar, maybe billion dollar, I don't know, but like a big company, designed a drink in order to be shared on Instagram. That was its pro- – like the guys got in a room and said, we need to create a drink that's like cool and pretty and people want to take pictures of it and send it to their friends. That, that was like a board meeting or something. And so they created this, this thing called the unicorn frappuccino. I don't know how many unicorns they killed to make this drink, but it's tragic, okay? Um, so what it's, it's literally this like pink and purple thing, and, and, and something happened with this drink. People responded. People were going to Starbucks. It was only for a short period of time. A lot of people went, got this drink, took pictures of it, and shared it. And then people started to talk about it. And there was this cultural, literally, this cultural phenomenon of people saying, yeah, if you didn't share it, it didn't actually happen. It, it was trending on Twitter at one point. Like, if you didn't share it, it didn't actually happen. In other words, if you didn't share your post about you getting the unicorn frappuccino, did you actually do it? And I promise you, what I'm about to show you was not planned, and I did not know that this happened before. Mike Dvorak in the back, he's one of our faithful 
on staff people. This is his Instagram post. And, it, and if you can read, if you don't post it on Instagram, have you really ordered a unicorn frappuccino? Question mark. Mike, you're just gold, man. That's so good. But that's what it is. Like, it, and on it, there's no, on it, I, I read earlier, there's no, there's no coffee in this, by the way. Like, it's just sugar. Um, and some people liked it, and a lot of people hated it. But it doesn't matter if you liked it or if you hated it. All that matters is that you share it. All that matters is that other people know that you went to Starbucks and you got a unicorn frappuccino. So it, so it used to be, the state of being of human, humanity used to be, in fact, that's kind of dramatic, but it's kind of the truth, is I, I have a feeling, therefore, I want to go to my next door neighbor. Or I want to talk to my aunt. Or I need to talk to my mom. Or I'm going to send a text. Or I'm going to, I'm going to make a call. Because I have this feeling and I want to talk to someone about it. I want to connect with someone about this feeling that I'm having. And now more and more it, it's becoming, I want to have a feeling. Therefore, I will post on Facebook. Or I'll send, or send a tweet. Or I'll take a picture on Instagram. Or I'll make a story on Snapchat. I, I will now connect to millions or hundreds or ten people via social media because I want to have a feeling. The problem with this new wave of connection is that if we don't share, then we don't feel like ourselves. If the internet does not react or respond to our emotions or our perspectives, then we are unsure how to respond to our own emotions or ourselves. Our new version of connection actually leads us into a version of isolation. Did you catch that? Our new version of connection actually leads us into a type of isolation. We are slowly but surely losing the habit of cultivating a capacity for solitude. And from isolation, we begin to disassociate our empathy from the people in our lives. And more specifically, the people that we just don't like or disagree with. You see, solitude is that place where things are quiet. And we're alone and we're able to kind of deal with our emotions and wrestle through them. And for a lot of us, I think if we're honest, the reason we don't like being alone is because there's a lot of darkness in there. There's a lot of hard stuff that comes to the surface the moment you are alone. And it's just a lot easier to flip open Instagram and scroll through some pictures or connect with someone over Facebook. It's easier than having to deal with those emotions yourself. An entire culture without the habit of being alone on a regular basis runs the risk of becoming more comfortable connecting, engaging, and even debating over the glow of a computer screen over the light in someone's eyes. And this is already becoming true, a part of our reality. It is now easier to be who you really are on Facebook or Instagram or have some version of authenticity than it is in a real actual conversation. It is much easier to explain and defend your perspectives on race, sexuality, politics, religion, or social commentary to a thousand invisible listeners with a million articles or personal rants than it is to sit down and talk with someone who fundamentally disagrees with you and love them. The danger staring us in the face is something that that I call isolated evangelism. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to write this down. Isolated evangelism. When our social media outlets 
are the exclusive areas we are sharing our lives and explaining or defending our perspectives, we can easily slip into isolation. And here's the the really scary thing about that. Is the moment we allow ourselves to slip into our own version of isolation, it becomes so much easier to isolate an entire people group because they think and or live differently than we do. Just that quickly, that simple, because I don't want to be alone. Therefore, I share my perspectives with 100,000 invisible listeners makes it that much easier to push people actually away from me. Isolation breeds self-righteousness because the moment we are free to prove how right we are with very little room for feedback or accountability, we will most likely be proving it to ourselves only. Once our voice is the loudest one influencing our own perspectives, that is when our opinions can become judgments and our judgments can become condemnations. Isolation breeds isolation. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to write that down. Isolation breeds isolation. The more isolated we are in our faith and our understanding of who God is, the easier it will be to isolate an entire group of people or even one person because they, we don't like what they say. And this is where I think the story of pigs and pearls is really, really helpful. It's important to note that this story told by Jesus in the first century is primarily a story. This is not a three-step action plan on how to not be a condemning person on social media. As I'm sure you picked that up. It's a story. Uh, Eugene Peterson, he, he was a pastor and a scholar for many years. Uh, he's the author of the message translation. He writes this about Jesus' stories. Every time Jesus tells a story, the world of those who listen enlarges, understanding Deepens. Imaginations are energized. Without stories, we end up with stereotypes. A flat earth with flat cardboard figures that have no texture, no depth, no interior. We need stories because they get us into the perspective of someone else. They put flesh on bones. And that's what Jesus, I think, is doing here. And this story of dogs receiving sacred things and pigs receiving pearls, the emphasis is not on the dogs and it is not on the pigs. It is on the giving of the gift itself. See, the trouble with this teaching, the reason it's hard for us to understand is the exact same purpose of the teaching itself. Let me explain. Uh, the, the trouble with this teaching, uh, if you take it literally, Jesus says, don't give your pearls to pigs. The trouble with that is never once in all of my life have I even at one time been tempted to give a pearl to a pig. So I'm like, sweet Jesus, got it. Like, on it. I'm on my way to perfection. And that's the goal. I've never once been tempted to do that. Now, for my uh, and Kelsey's one year anniversary, which by the way, next week is number five. Praise the Lord. Um, uh... For our one year anniversary, I really wanted to give Kelsey something that was of value. Something that was precious. Something that she would really care a lot about. Something that she could carry on uh, through our marriage, through her life. Maybe give to, now that we have a daughter, maybe give to our daughter someday. Uh, But something that was precious to her. And so, this is true. I I got her a a string of pearls for our one year anniversary. And they were nice. Like, we were really poor. Like, almost got in trouble how nice they were. You know what I mean? It's just like... um, 
But they were, they were a beautiful thing. And Kelsey still has them to this day. And she'll wear them on occasion. She doesn't wear them every day um, because they're really nice. She, she knows the value of the pearl well enough to know when to bring it out and when not to. She treasures the pearls because they're worth treasuring. And she knows it. The reason I've never been tempted to give a string of pearls to a pig is because a pig is not my wife. The pig has a totally different value system. And by me simply presenting the gift of a pearl, however precious or beautiful that pearl may be, does not automatically change that pig into a person who can appreciate it. That gift does nothing in the transformation of that pig. Alone. In Matthew 7, 6, Jesus is showing us, I think, the futility of isolated evangelism. The act of spewing forth our understanding of what is true and right and valuable does not equate to a person being transformed. Trying to change someone's heart by telling them that they are wrong is about as effective as pleasing a pig with a pearl. Dallas Willard goes on uh, to help me out here and explain it better than I can. Frankly, our pearls are often offered with a certain superiority of bearing that keeps us from uh, paying attention to those we are trying to help. We have the solutions. Shouldn't that be enough? And very quickly, some contempt, impatience, anger, and even condemnation slips into our offer. To try to put this simply, if you're taking notes today... The message of Jesus must look the same online as it does offline. What I mean by that is this. The life that you live, your real life, your, your raw attitude and, and who you actually are and who you, what you are pursuing, the good and the beauty that you are trying to pursue in the world should look the exact same as what you are able to present on social media or through the mediums of technology. And the trouble with that is this. We, we now are able to have two lives. In our world. We're able to have our real life with our real people and families. And we're also to have an edited life. A filtered life. A life that we can make sepia-toned beautiful. And it can come with a million different filters. And we can make ourselves look really, really good. And we must be okay with recognizing that sometimes... The plank in our own eye takes the shape of a computer screen or a cell phone. We cannot settle for trying to fit the gospel into 140 characters on Twitter. The message of Christ has no need to be filtered or edited. It needs only to be lived. So let us learn then how to be alone with ourselves and with God in order to be more present and loving with others. Online and offline. May we, regard our, may we guard ourselves from ourselves and recognize that we need people to meet us where we are just as much as we need to meet them where they are. Instead of slinging articles and, and throwing truth around over Facebook, rather let us be, have the courage to enter into conversation with people we disagree with, to learn from them and listen to them and love them, to be really more like Jesus becoming a part of his broken creation and not holding it against us, but entering into it with us, loving us and offering us a new kind of life. And so today in closing, I want to tell you a quick story and give you a practice uh, for you to use in your life that I'm trying to adopt more and more in my own to help me do this online 
and offline to allow, the, to allow God's love to be the guiding principle of God's message in my life and the people around me. Christine Cleveland is a professor at Duke Divinity School. She's a social psychologist, a public theologian, and author. And her work stands at the intersection of social psychology, spirituality, and justice. She's basically my hero. And she tells this uh, personal story. Uh, early on in her career, she was um, a university professor. Um, she would come into a classroom as an uh, African-American woman. And typically, every semester, uh, a group of usually white young men would make it their goal to kind of prove how wrong she was about certain things, to, to argue with her about theology and to, to always be bringing up new ideas about how she could be interpreting things differently. Um, and over time, that really, as you can imagine, began to wear on her as a professor. And she had to ask herself the question, how do I teach students that I hate? Which is a pretty severe reaction, but, but it's where she was at. And she knew that she needed to overcome that in order to be more fully present and really to explain the love of God to her students. And so she started this practice. Every time one of those students would come into the classroom or they would raise their hand to answer questions, she would quietly say to herself, the image of God in me greets the image of God in you. Now, what she's trying to do here by saying this is she is trying to get underneath the surface of their violent reaction. She's trying to get underneath the surface of where they disagree and really how they disagree. And she is trying to connect herself as a child, a daughter of God, to their inherent created identity and dignity. Recognizing that they are that child that needs the love of God, that needs the saving work of Jesus desperately a part of their life. That they need God just as much as she needs God. And she began to notice something over time, slowly. She began to notice that, that, she would actually, that her hatred for these students slowly began to turn the corner to love. She noticed that actually when they would sling ignorant claims towards her, she would be able to absorb them with the context of love, knowing who they are. That who they are is not that insult. Who they are is not that ignorant claim. Who they are is something way more valuable than that. And then slowly over time, those students begin to drop their guards. Those students begin to enter into genuine conversation to, with, with her, ending in like mentoring relationships with these students. All because she, she determined in, in herself to say, the image of God in me greets the image of God in you. And if I can leave you with anything today, um, in, my, in my last sermon with you, is to learn to put this into practice. Learn to recognize that, that we, as followers of Jesus, have been given a gift in the message of God. I mean, Jesus talked about it as a burden that's not light. Uh, it's not heavy. It, it's a gift. It's a way of living. And really what it does is it helps us to see beyond the screen, beyond our phone, and into the hearts and lives of real people who need real love, who need to be heard, who deserve to be heard just as much as I do and as you do. Begin to put that into your practice. Learn to love as God loves you. And, and I, just, I just say, um, as, as, I, as I end, thank you. Personally, thank you. 
Thank you for allowing me to stand here for the past two years and preach the gospel to you, to, to look through God's word together, uh, to see many of you grow in faith and, and to continue your passion for Jesus and, and to get started in, in areas and ministries that make sense for you. Uh, it's, it's been a privilege of mine and a joy that I will treasure. Um, and so as I close, know that the image of God in me greets the image of God in you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the people in this room. Lord, I thank you that, that you are that you are working all things to reconcile for good. That you are that perfect judge that will enact justice. That you are inspiring hundreds of thousands of millions of, of Christ followers around the world to be at the forefront of love and kindness and genuineness in the world. Not on social media, not, not behind a screen, not to a, a, a silent audience, but to real people guiding the force for good in the world. And God, I pray that this church would do that. I pray, God, that only good things would follow this church and that they, they would uh, be inspired by the love of God in their life, that they would know that they are that child of God, that they have been created meticulously and intricately and intentionally, and that they are loved because of it, regardless of their past or where they come from or what they are currently dealing with. They are loved as they are. God, may this church continue to invite people in and give them hope of Jesus, give them a vision for the future. And God, may, may many people come to this place and experience God for who you truly are. God, we look to you, we trust you, and we love you. In Christ's holy name, amen.